0: For the politics of Nashville, to the history of the Upper Cumberland, this is the Backroads and Backstories podcast with Senator Paul Bailey. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Senator Paul Bailey. In today's episode, we're turning the tables a little bit. I will be interviewing Natalie Allison, who is a reporter for the Tennessean USA Today Network and Eric Schelzig, editor of the Tennessee Journal. Welcome, Natalie and Eric. I've been looking forward to asking the questions instead of being asked the questions from the hot seat.
1: Well, thanks for having us. (laughs) Good to be
0: here. (laughs) But before we get started, uh, I'd like to invite both of you to uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves, and we'll start with the ladies first. Miss Natalie, give us your backstory.
1: All right. Well, I have been with the Tennessean going on four years now. It'll be four years this summer. I came here to Nashville uh, to work for the Tennessean. Before that, I was born and raised in North Carolina, where I also started my reporting career. I started off covering the cops and breaking news and that kind of thing, and then switched over to politics uh, 2018, right after the 2018 primaries with the, the governor's race and the U.S. Senate race.
0: So what? persuaded you to follow a career in journalism
1: I decided when I was 14 that that's what I wanted to do I thought initially I wanted to be on tv and then by the time I was graduating high school I said no way I'm never going to do that you know I'm going to stick to writing and that is what I did and I majored in journalism something I probably wouldn't do again if I could do that over. Although I do love this job I just would probably get a degree in something more useful than journalism but uh, here I am yeah
0: so who do you admire most in the field of journalism?
1: Currently or historically? Both. Okay. Historically, I am a fan of Dorothy Thompson. Dorothy was, she was one of the early female radio reporters, but she was best known for going over to Europe. And she was covering basically the rise of national socialism. And she was one of the first people really in the U.S. and in journalism to describe what was happening with the rise of Nazis. And um, she was the first U.S. reporter to get thrown out of Nazi Germany in 1934 or so, something like that. She came back to the U.S. and kept writing about it, sounding the alarm on the rise of fascism and Nazism. She, uh, she interviewed Hitler in the early 30s and went on to write a book about it. And then in the late 30s, in the U.S., she, um, you know, she would go to some Nazi rallies here in the U.S. and famously, like, got attacked by someone time when she started laughing during one of them at just what they were doing and had to get us out by the police. But she's definitely, she's definitely a role model.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then currently?
1: Currently. I don't know. I'm going to have to defer on that. I have a, I don't know, I have a collection of uh, reporters that I follow, but I don't, I don't think there's any one person that. I most admire. I think you have to take in all sorts of media, right? You well, have you know, to. You've,
0: you've got Eric sitting right across yes. from you. So, you know, Besides he, he's, he's kind of like waving at you, like, exactly. you know, the, the, name, the, name, The silence
2: name. is deafening <laughs> on that
1: one. I, I, take in, <laughs> I, take in, I take in a lot of different types of news. You know, I'm not the kind of person who just turns on a TV channel and get all my news from that. I don't even have cable, so I don't watch really? TV,
0: but yeah. Very yeah, good.
1: I don't know. It takes all types. I think we should we should all take in a mix of of news sources.
0: Very good. Eric, we're going to turn to you and let you tell us just a little about your background and where you grew up and your journalism career.
2: Well, where I grew up is is a complicated story. I've lived sort of all over the place. Uh, mostly I went to high school in the Philippines where my father was working at the time and then went to college in D.C., where I ended up getting into academics and was actually working on my PhD in political science and got a job at the Washington Post at the time, answering phones and, and being a sort of news clerk and what in the old days used to call a newsboy, and basically got seduced by it. Uh, basically academics is, is is very much a long-run proposal while news is an instant gratification thing. And so while I was at the paper sort of watching the reporters do the reporting and have the papers actually running off the presses, which still ran in the building at the time by 9 p.m., and, and having that in your hand was was sort of an exciting idea, and I ended up dropping out of the PhD program, getting my master's, and in going into into journalism, where I ended up with the AP, the Associated Press, starting in Miami, where I covered a lot of sports and then courts and and, and politics, transferred to West Virginia for a couple of years, where I covered the first term of then-governor Joe Manchin, and then moved here to Tennessee in 05 and caught the sort of second term of, of uh, phil bredesen and then of course haslam and, and and lee and i've been here ever since i moved to the tennessee journal which is a weekly newsletter about politics and government in 2018 and it's a weekly it's a different cadence than with the ap which was was an immediate sort of thing and it's been challenging but fun and uh and, I, and i've enjoyed it and uh I'm now one of the old-timers in the Tennessee uh, Capitol Hill Press Corps, which is uh, <laughs> yes, you are. Which, which is a, a weird feeling because I used to be the kid.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot of us legislators that look forward to getting the Tennessee Journal at the end of every week to see if our name has been mentioned in there, especially if we've made some comment that's uh, been caught during committee or on the floor. So it's always very interesting to get your take. And so, I know it's very well read as well as a lot of constituents back in my area read the Tennessee Journal because I'll get messages stating, you know, well, did this really happen or did you say that? And so, you know, just to verify. Have you ever been the subject of the weekly joke? I believe I was a few weeks ago about my uh, horse accident that I had. I I believe that uh, Eric said something. I, I don't remember the exact details. At the time, I was probably heavily on ibuprofen, so uh, I don't remember. I think
2: think your your colleagues made a lot of jokes about that themselves. I didn't have to pile in
0: too much. (laughs) (laughs) So who do you admire professionally? And it can be uh, past or current
2: you know it's uh I, I guess i'd have a sort of hybrid answer having had the advantage of letting natalie answer the question first i got to think about it a little bit but uh given that i've been here uh, in tennessee now for about 15 years uh, i got here when a generation of reporters who had been covering the state house was you know i guess working toward the end of their respective careers but people like uh, tom humphrey uh, with the knoxville News sentinel who covered the state house for a long time and was the dean of the press corps until he retired and uh, richard locker it was with the uh, commercial appeal of Memphis, who had a uh, sort of long institutional memories and knew uh, where all the bodies were buried, and helped me out on learning all the context and history. And they really had a great influence on how I covered the state house. So if if you don't like what I write, you might want to talk to them. Um, <laughs> and 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 so th- those are the people that sort of inspired me and 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 sort of helped me direct myself uh, in my coverage.
0: Very good. So that'll. Uh... Take us from sharing your backstories and your background to uh, questions of, of today as we move forward. You know, online platforms and social media and podcasts have had major effects, both good and bad, on how we as citizens receive the news. And even with the two of you sitting here at this table, Natalie, you are in a news cycle with a daily paper However, Eric, you're with a weekly newspaper and, of course, also reporting for the Associated Press. I'm going to start with you, Eric, on this first question. Can you elaborate on how, as an editor and a journalist, uh, have adapted to this change in the news media?
2: Well, just to be clear, I, I no longer write for the Associated Press. I, I, I left them and now and do all my, my own thing. I do have a, a blog, the Tennessee the TNJ on the Hill blog. Which, I guess, is a partial answer to your question. Um, You know, the Tennessee Journal for for 45 years was a weekly publication that came out in print. At some point, they started sending out a PDF, which was a major technological advancement. Now, we also have a blog, which is, you know, usually at least one story per day. And it sort of accelerated things because, I guess, the feeling was and is that you can't wait with with Twitter and, 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 and Facebook and all the social media elements out there. I guess the important thing that i try to remember when there's a a social media frenzy about an issue is that a very small group of people actually get involved with that and read that and it isn't out in the wider world really until people see things on the tv news or in their newspaper or or have a reputable source that is is reporting this so i find myself caught up sometimes and feel like maybe you know this has been all over twitter why should i report it again and I remember that a lot of people probably missed that, or if they were away from their computer or their phone for a couple hours, that the next crisis, the next scandal is struck, and it's time to sort of, you know make sure people remember important developments uh, as they go on.
0: Bet you, Natalie.
1: I want to add to what Eric said. I think the beauty of what he does and can do is that while some of us are scrambling to you know be the first to get the the news out there or whatnot, he can also provide really helpful context. So like take a step back and Connect dots and and provide some of that context for readers, you know, in the the hours or you know sometimes a day following. So it's good that we have people on different news cycles and with different kind of approaches to reporting the news. Okay, so the question is, how uh, how this news cycle affects what I do? Is that
0: exactly? Okay. Can can you elaborate on how you as a journalist have adapted to the change regarding social media and the reporting of news?
1: So I am. I've been a, a full-time reporter for eight years. Um, so as long as I've been a, a reporter, as long as I've been in this industry, it's been, you know, digital first. I've always worked for for print newspapers, but the digital component, the web component, Twitter, that's always been a part of the job for me. That's That is all I've known. And so unlike someone who spent years and years and years, you know, writing for the end-of-the-day deadline for print... I've always had this expectation that, you know, as soon as you get a story, it's it's gonna go up on the website. And there has always been this time sensitive element to it. And so, you know, being at a at a publication like the Tennessean, you know, you have to do more than just tweet. You have to, you have to write a full story. And so it's this constant balance of trying to be quick to report the news, trying to be competitive, but also in the moment, still providing necessary background and context and getting it right and not jumping to conclusions and taking the time to make sure that all relevant parties can be heard out in that story. And so I think that's always just kind of been part of the job for me. But certainly, uh, you know, competition keeps us on our toes. And, it, you know, I, I do like to be the first to report something if I can. But I think with that, it's, it's very important to, to make sure that whatever the issue is, is, is being portrayed as fairly as possible.
0: So do you believe that the changes um, that we're talking about, are better for consumers of media the media or both
1: uh, well i don't i don't think anything is better for the media these days because it seems like our <laughs> industry is you know just declining rapidly so whatever this current model is it doesn't seem like it's actually better for us at least from the uh bottom line standpoint i mean it has its 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 pluses and minuses i I think that, you know, I guess it's good for people that they can be informed in relative real time, but that has its downsides and that sometimes the, you know, reporters don't take the time to get the facts right. Or sometimes people jump to conclusions or you don't have a full day to flesh out a story that will appear on the nightly news or in the morning newspaper. And so I think that causes a lot of people to frantically report things and can, and consume news and and develop an opinion on something, maybe in a way that's different than it would have in the traditional news cycle. I mean, you guys can weigh on weigh in on that. What about you? Like, compared to how you used to consume news, which what maybe was, you know, watching the, the news at night or newspaper, how do you consume news differently now? And how do you think that impacts how you understand a given issue?
0: Now you've gone into the uh, journalist mode. I'm just and, trying to be conversation and, and, and. here. <laughs> but you're this doing a great Senator, The
2: correct answer is I'll ask the questions here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Eric? <laughs> oh, he's oh wow, dodging. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> uh, you know, I I I think the social media. Uh, I agree with Natalie is that it does give everyone a chance to weigh in and and have a real time, uh, you know, information and to and to and also put out their own ideas and views on on things that happen. I guess the problem is that the growth of social media has sort of come at the expense of paid media, which you know means that newspapers and 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 TV stations can employ fewer reporters. And I think that hurts the overall coverage of things like the state house, you know, in the old days when our press room was, you know, had 25, 30, 40 people in it during the session. And these days we have seven, now, granted it's a pandemic, so things are a little bit less on a crowded day, <laughs> you know, things, things are less, even less busy now than they have been, but you know, the AP routinely used to have, you know, two, three, four, sometimes five staffers down here covering various stories. And now it's down to two. And then, you know, for the newspaper, regional newspapers, you know, there's, there's, you know, there used to be multiple uh, member bureaus and now they're single
0: or none. <laughs> and then a lot of newspapers don't come at all. Right. So, and, and, and so just to follow up on that is do you think there's fewer reporters here today because of cost cutting measures within those media outlets, or because again, we're talking about social media, you know, a Senator can, or, or a representative can tweet something, Facebook something, and so you as a journalist can pick that up and go with it sooner than having to uh, run a legislator down in the hallways. I mean, why do you think, um, and we, is it cost-cutting measures, or is it just the fact that most all legislators have social media and you can pick up on their stories from there?
2: Well, I think that's that is a helpful element, though nothing beats talking to somebody in person rather than getting their prepared sort of statement on... Over social media or press release the cost cutting you know goes back to before social media it goes back to just the development of online news and where people started to expect to get their news for free and back in the old days as 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 people around here like to say everyone used to take a newspaper in the morning and now a lot of people just don't and they don't see a value in, in spending money on a subscription to to many news outlets and as a consequence the newspapers have smaller operating budgets fewer reporters and things that just necessarily go uncovered. You know, I, I, I don't know that social media, I mean, I guess it's, it, you know, through social media, we can make up for some of the loss in, in news coverage, but it's not complete. I mean, if you look back at the old newspapers, you'd see pages and pages of copy about legislative hearings on a whole variety of issues that would never make the paper now because, you know, we down there have to decide, you know, prioritize what to cover. And necessarily it's gonna be, you know, the bright, shiny objects. The most important issues of the day, which doesn't mean there isn't a whole host of issues that aren't important. They just right. can't get covered because the, the manpower isn't
0: there.
1: Yeah. And the, the company I work for, we now, you know, I represent eight newspapers in Tennessee. So oh, wow. uh, because
0: of the USA Today because, Network. Yeah,
1: because of Gannett, because of the USA Today Network. So historically, Commercial Appeal, the New Sentinel, I imagine the Daily News Journal and the Leaf Chronicle all had their own correspondence and up here, not to, mention, yeah, sure. Sun, yeah. not to mention Jackson Sun, not to mention several from the Tennessean. And <laughs> the reality today is there are two of us covering the state house for all of those newspapers, which is such a loss in terms of, you know, newspapers' ability to cover various issues. And yeah, we do have to pick issues that constantly is, you know, causing us to get criticism from. From people, certainly from members, about, you know, well, why aren't you covering all the good things we do? Or why aren't you writing about my bill? And it's just, it's not feasible to do that. So much going on and so few of us. And so it does present this challenge of we have to make a judgment call on guess what serves the public interest the most and what will actually be read. And
0: and you're touching on the answer to this next question. So take our listeners into the decision process behind what gets reported in the news cycle. I mean, what is it that drives reporters, journalists, to your point, Natalie, to make that decision of what gets reported to the public and what doesn't get reported. Because many times there is always a backstory to the story that's actually printed. And I think that some consumers, if they knew the backstory of the story that was actually printed, they would have a different opinion. Of either A, the story, or B, the person or subject that's being reported.
1: Well, I want to emphasize regarding what you said about what doesn't get printed. It is very, very, very rarely that we would consciously say, like, we are not going to cover XSU because, you know, we don't want the public to know about it. I mean, that's just not, that's not something that happens in our newsroom. You know, I'm not being told, oh, don't definitely don't write about XSU in the legislature or definitely don't cover any of Paul Bailey's bills. Um, it's <laughs> just a matter of.
0: You don't have to cover any, man.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's just a
1: matter of we can only get to so much. So something not showing up in print or not showing up in coverage is pretty much never because we made a conscious decision. We're just refusing to provide the public with information on that. Now, what we do cover, I mean, there's there's kind of, you know, multiple criteria there. Obviously, it's really important. What are the potential consequences of this legislation? You know, is this something that the public seems to really care about? Is this something that stakeholders are really trying to weigh in on? and trying to, you know, provide a voice about, in some cases, it's, this is something that's really important that no one seems to be talking about. This is something that has kind of flown under the radar that we think needs to be highlighted. There's certainly a watchdog approach, you know, our our coverage of things like the TANF issue or the PEBT money. That was something that the Tennessean we recognized just wasn't being discussed. And we thought it was important. We thought it was important for the public to know how money in that case wasn't being spent. And so you know, there's there's different reasons every time.
0: Gotcha. And and I believe that uh, the governor has brought out a plan on spending some of that money, and maybe that goes back to your reporting on it.
1: You know, I, I, I can tell you that the governor initially did not seem to be too enthusiastic about coming up with a plan, and uh, there was a lot of coverage over the course of over a year on that. And so I'd like to think that— You, you had know, a us, part in that. And not that I had a part, but just that us keeping this in the forefront of the public's attention and— I think legislators' attention, too, got the ball rolling. And that's, that's a great reason to, to support media, you know, support news media. That's, that's change that can be affected in a meaningful way for some people just due to us casting light on something.
0: I'm going to come to you with that same question in, in regards to the decision process for what gets reported in news cycles. But as a legislator, there are times that I may see your tweet. I may see your news story before that I actually know about it as a legislator. That's so, good to hear. So so <laughs> there are times that uh, you actually uh, are breaking stories that uh, I'm not aware of. And and I can just say that, you know, Natalie, you or Eric may call and say, hey, Senator Bailey, we'd won- like for you to comment regarding the story that's just come out. And I may have to say, "Uh, can I get back with you on that? Because I have to do the research to find out, you know, about the story. Because, again, it's breaking faster than what we're able to receive the information. And so many times, and I think that that was even part of it, was um, the TANF money and the story that uh, was broke there. I think that was one of those stories that, you know, kind of like, oh, wow, you know. So, thank you, Eric. I'll I'll turn to you now, and just you know, what do you um, decision process behind uh, behind your reporting of on your news cycles?
2: You know, I'm in a weird spot in my current role just because of the, the weekly approach, and I sort of have to sort of take stock toward the middle of the week when I'm getting closer to my deadline, and try to figure out what I can cover that hasn't already been covered extensively in you know traditional media. You know, because there's not a ton of value in me just going in and, and regurgitating everything Natalie is has so finally reported during the week, right? I mean, it happens sometimes because it's an important story, but for the most part, I try to sort of figure out where everyone's going and then and then go in a slightly different tack, just as not to be repetitive. In terms of just daily stories that get covered or just covers decisions, there's always a tension between, you know, the the projects and the ideas and beats that reporters are are following. And then things that spring up and happen during the day, right? As much as you like to plan and look at the list of bills that are up in committee, you never know when somebody's going to say something wacky, or, or there's going to be. And a, I would point to my
0: friend Frank nasley
2: Well, that's true. I mean, he's 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 a he's a great he's a great purveyor of 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 interesting comments and and ideas. But you know, it, it's sort of like when I was with the AP, I'd sit down with my editor at the beginning of the week, and we sort of try to map out what was going to happen. And then when we look back at the, when the week was over, it, invariably we had covered a whole different slew of of stories and ideas just because that's the way things developed and then there's a lot of time longer term projects that that go into a lot of campaign finance stuff which takes a lot of work and digging to sort of put together that is kind of independent from the daily churn of the news that will come out you know and people sometimes are surprised like where'd this come from it's like well this has been in the works for a couple weeks because it doesn't happen that easily but yeah i agree with natalie that you know i think there's a view perhaps outside of journalism that there's some kind of invisible hand that's guiding what the media is going to cover or not cover. And, and it just isn't the case. I mean, it all boils down to what's interesting and, you know, a lot of times conflict sells, right? right so when, right. when there's, when there's a big partisan fight or when lawmakers go at each other and, you know, one Senator is yelling at another one on the Senate floor. And that, uh,
0: that never happens.
2: It's happened once or twice, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not to current members so much, but to some <laughs> former ones who you might recall. But th- these are things that we, you know, for example, you know, we as the press have spots inside the chamber and these are things you can see when you're in the chamber and you won't see on the video stream and they're worth reporting i mean i had a story uh, last week where uh, a state representative got angry at a colleague in committee and was sort of shouting at him after his bill got killed in 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 the subcommittee and again if you were watching the video you wouldn't have seen it i just happened to have been in the room so of course it was was a great piece of color to include because you know these are things we like to see now of course whether that's fair to the members you know I I don't know but I think as people want to know is it I think it's well lawmakers are human and personalities come into play and a lot of times you know that that's what ends up being interesting
0: and so to the point yes we are elected officials but we're also human so we all have emotions and I think many times we try to hide those emotions because of our position also i think we try to hide those emotions from the media just simply because we don't want you to see our weaknesses or we don't want you to basically be trying to i don't want to necessarily use the word figure out which angle we're going at whenever we're presenting a bill or we're talking to a member or we're talking to a lobbyist or something but let me ask this question is there a competitiveness between or among the reporters when it comes to a news story. So Eric, you know, you've heard something, you've seen something and you want to be the first to break it. Do you share that with Natalie or do you break it and then share it with Natalie or she has to just catch it whenever you do the story break?
2: You know, it's, we're not really in direct competition, uh, just by the nature of our respective outlets. I think it was probably different when I was with the AP and, you know, and also when the press corps was bigger, there was a lot of competition for issues. I find these days when I hear something that's happening with, for example, the Chattanooga delegation, I don't necessarily have a great interest in it, but I can lean over to my colleague Andy Scherer at the Times Free Press and be like, hey, by the way, you know, Senator Mike Bell said X, Y, and Z today, you might want to look into it. I mean, Mike Bell's from Bradley County, but same same, uh, coverage area. But when I was with AP, I might not have been so eager to share because uh, I might <laughs> well want to run it myself. But, you know, I feel like as as our numbers have shrunk, I, I see more of an esprit de corps and, and that people tend to be feel like we're all in this together and it, and it helps to sort of foster each other than to sort of beat each other down. Whereas in the old days, you heard these, these great stories about people sort of hiding AG's opinions so people wouldn't, a colleague wouldn't find them or, or trying to break into somebody's locked drawer to find a document that they really wanted to get. And all these, you know, these, these great competitive uh, issues that I think, for the most part, have gone by the wayside. But, of course, everyone wants to be first if they have a juicy tidbit. And I don't think that's ever going to go away.
0: How about you, Natalie?
2: The yeah. Competitive... I, I think we're all competitive. Yeah, we
1: are. I'm, I'm competitive. And like Eric said, I think, especially with the journal and, you know, versus other publications, it's a little bit different because his publication schedules, you know, not a daily thing necessarily besides what he chooses to put on the blog. But yeah, among other news outlets, sure, yeah, I'm competitive, and I don't want to get scooped on something. I mean, there's plenty of times, too, you know, I'll find out some kind of tidbit, and I'm like, oh, should I go ahead and tweet this before Eric puts it out in, like, you know, in a blog post or something? Because, you know, I'm like, oh, Eric probably has this, too. So, I mean, even with him, you know, there's still competition. That's...
0: You know, Natalie, she's uh, contacted me before, and she said, oh, have, um, have you heard about this? And... Uh, oh, Natalie, are you about to write a story? Oh, no, I just wanted to know if you'd heard it or not. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's basically she's trying to make sure that what she's about to tweet or say is factual. No, sometimes she's <laughs> just she... got
1: to check stuff out, you know? Not everything's a story, but you got to just stay on top of it.
0: Uh, no, I think that's great. And, you know, listen, I totally respect the, the news media when, when they're fair and and I certainly think that capital news press that that I interact with is 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 very fair and so you know it, which brings us to um, a question how do you um, how do either of you or both of you I want you to comment on this when when you hear the statement fake news well that's that's fake news that's fake news
2: well it's unfortunately it's, it's it's lazy if you have a problem with a specific story or a specific issue then You should just say what it is and and have it addressed. And if a correction is necessary, it'll happen. Newspapers are very conscientious about this to sort of throw out a blanket statement and say, this is all just fake news without saying what about it is purportedly fake doesn't get anybody anything except for basically undermining the, you know, the veracity or or the, or the importance of, of, of independent news media coverage of important issues. So I, I think it's, it's a very dangerous term and, and as, as, potentially wide-ranging consequences for civil society, not to exaggerate the matter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think historically, you know, someone would read a story and they, they thought there was some kind of factual issue or they disagreed with its premise and they would write a letter to the editor or maybe they'd reach out to the reporter. And I certainly, I still get thoughtful notes, sometimes critical from readers, and I, I always appreciate those types of messages, but I get many more just, you know, tweets or emails laced with profanities, you know, telling me to, to go do horrible things. And I, I don't think there's as much thoughtful critique of news coverage as there used to be. It's just if someone doesn't like the premise of a story, it must not be true. If it doesn't, if it's a one's ideology one way or the other. It's clearly, you know, the reporter pandering to to one party or the other. And that's that's not the case. And so I wish more people would take the time to actually think about, you know, why it is they they just can't bring themselves to believe what's in the news and have some kind of thoughtful critique of it.
0: Okay, so are you offended when you hear someone say that's fake news?
1: I mean, I just think they sound stupid uh, for the most part. I mean, if they can't articulate, if they said, you know, this is fake news because whatever, but it's usually just, oh, fake news, liberal media, you know, don't trust it.
0: Eric?
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, like like I said, I agree. I mean, it's just, you know, again, when I worked at the ap like think a correction and having to run a correction on a story was like the, the black mark against you you know like you were you were depressed for days because you know this had to go out in the wire saying the ap erroneously reported x y and z you know and and that and that is a big deal to reporters and it really you know like these are things we tend to try to avoid as much as possible because of course you don't want to get factual errors in, in, in stories and then for this term to come out that the entire story is just somehow fake or concocted you know, just obviously rubs all reporters the wrong way, which might be the intent, I don't know.
0: Well, and, and so just to follow up again, I'm going to say that that uh, I appreciate the reporting that, that you do and, and certainly hearing you answer this question, I believe that both of you have, have high integrity, but I'll just point to a story that came out recently on the national level in regards to the presidential election where one news media outlet reported and now they have just now come out with the correction and said, well, the story wasn't exactly true, so you're basically 90 days later. And so I think that's where people don't trust cable news networks because they're sometimes slow about doing their corrections and it appears that they had intent in the way that they reported their their story. So that's the reason that I just ask about well, it. On,
2: on the other hand, this was, I think, a Washington Post story that originally came out in, in December, and they had heard from somebody who was on the call, were given the information of, of what was allegedly said, but then when the recording came out, and it turned out it hadn't been said, they ran a big correction, and it became a big story. So it wasn't, yes, I mean, there's a long, a, a long period of time passed, but they didn't hide from the fact that they hadn't got it right they they made a there was a big self you know examination of how this happened and they reported here's what was actually said and here's what we reported and here's the difference you know i think if it was truly fake news they never would have made the fix and just stuck with what they reported in the first place
0: so how do you handle those what do you call it unidentifiable sources anonymous sources how do you handle that? Because I think that's where that story centered around. They were basically saying, well, it was an anonymous source. And then again, back to that story, they the anonymous source ended up being wrong. So that's where uh, I'm assuming you are put on the spot of making sure that if you have that anonymous source, you have to verify that what they're telling you is true.
1: And usually, you know, as, as an institution, you have policies about that. So a long time news publication like the Washington Post, I mean, the people who broke the Watergate scandal, I mean, they have a long history of, in some cases, using anonymous sources to legitimately cover news that is of the public interest. And as you can see from what happened with with this a few months ago, sometimes the people you're talking to get it wrong, and it's your responsibility to go back and correct that. But, you know, at at most legitimate news publications, you you have rules about if you're talking to someone anonymously, you you find more than one person to corroborate the information that's being told. I know at the Tennessean, if we are going to use someone, we call it on background. So it's not truly off the record. It's for using the information they're giving us, but not attributing it to someone by name that we would call that on background. In almost every situation, my editor wouldn't let me run something like that without having two background sources to corroborate that. So if in this particular case... Paul Bailey is is telling me something on background well I'm, I'm probably not going to get the okay to just run that anonymous quote I'm gonna have to go over and you know ask Randy McNally you know if he's heard that too and okay you know is, is that something you can verify you know to be true and and then we would go from there and if my editors don't think those sources are compelling or don't find them trustworthy enough then maybe I wouldn't get the okay to do it so it's it's a case-by-case thing and that's where it comes down to I think having a reputation over time of quoting people or picking people as sources who know what they're talking about and you know, not just reporting stuff that's just completely wrong.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the problem is that you don't want to report rumors and you certainly don't want to report opinions. You know, someone tells me, you know, in the hallway, did you hear Paul Bailey is the best chairman in the legislature? It's like, I'm not going to print no. that. Well, why not? Well, because I don't have a corroborate <laughs> right? or, or, or worse for that matter. Right. Whichever, whichever the, whichever the rumor might I be. Like right. The best. but, <laughs> but, you know, a lot of it is based on long-time relationships and people that I've known in you know the the 15 years I've covered this legislature and and people who tend to know what they're talking about and people who don't. And the thing is, if someone tells me something on background that turns out to be you know intentionally false, like that's the end of it, and it's not going to happen again. You know, I don't find that to be the case for the most part. Now, a lot of people don't feel comfortable speaking on the record, especially about sensitive issues, but want to inform me <laughs> and my readership about what's going on. And I find that's it tends to be valuable, even if it isn't something that's a quotable issue or, you know, something we're reporting as fact is like, this is the thinking that's going on behind the scenes kind of thing, which is somewhat specific to my audience. Not entirely, but, but my people, you know, people read my publication tend to put value in to know what the speaker's office is thinking on a certain issue or not, even
0: if the speaker isn't saying on the record, you know, yes right. or no. So to that point, what does off the record mean to you, Nally?
1: I mean, off the record would mean you don't, you don't do anything with this information. I'm telling you this so you can understand, but it's not something you allude to in a story. It is not something you go around telling people I said, you know, it's off the record is, is rarely helpful. Uh, Background is much more helpful, but some, you know, sometimes it's, you get what you can get and you take that information and process it in your mind. And that helps you, points you in the right direction of where to go next and um, how to get at that information from another angle.
0: So have... And and Eric, you can certainly weigh in on that. I'm probably going to do a follow-up regarding off-the-record. Well, off the record. It's,
2: it's, I think the, the the problem is what the general public perceives to be off-the-record isn't the same thing that most journalists think of as off-the-record, right? So I've had it happen to me before where, where someone came up to me and said, look, off-the-record, you know, the governor's going to announce XYZ tomorrow. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's not really useful to me because off-the-record technically to us means this is not usable. Do not report this. And then the next day, the governor does X, Y, Z, and that same person comes back to me and says, I told you the governor is going to do that. Why didn't you report it? I was like, well, you told me it was off the record. So a lot of times you to stop and say, okay, wait, you mean on background, like, you know, you know he's going to do this because you are the person who drafted the press release and you're telling me this because you want to get this out into the world to sort of give everyone an idea that pay attention when the governor announces this thing tomorrow. That is on background as we understand it, because a lot of times, you know, an education is necessary, especially for people who don't deal with the media that often saying, well, what are these terms that we're talking about? This is not for attribution or this is not to be used. And these are two very different things.
0: Well, and I think that I've learned something just sitting here listening to YouTube regarding off the record and on background. So there's been times that I may have said to either of you, hey, off the record. And it's my way of saying, You know, you need to check this out. This may be something worth printing, but you're taking that as, oh, well, uh, thanks for the information, but I can't do anything with it. Yeah. So I've got to learn a new term of on background.
1: I mean, and it's something you can't do anything with it. You know, you can you can you can ask strategic (laughs) questions to other people to get that information. But but yeah, it's not it's not something, you know, I can put out a tweet saying someone just told me blah, 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 blah. Like that wouldn't really be upholding the the spirit of someone telling me something off the record.
0: So I'm going to ask this question and, and you guys will probably say, oh, this is off the record, but, uh, uh, but I hope you would be more on background. Uh, Eric, what kind of big story are you covering right now that uh, you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: Oh, you mean what I'm writing for this week's journal that's coming out on Friday? Uh, yeah, that, that's uh, that's what I need to know basis. How's, how about that? <laughs>
0: so so our listeners don't need to know right now. <laughs> they,
2: they they can find out when they get their subscription on Friday. Um, you know, g- generally speaking, um, you know we've been we've been following uh, obviously the the big you know FBI raids that happened. At the, just the, the, on the eve of this legislative session in the house of course not in the senate and the fallout from that and 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 trying to pick through campaign finance reports and any other information that we can glean because of course the the feds are are being typically tight-lipped about what it's all about and, and everyone's sort of on pins and needles about it so that's that's the overarching thing that i've been paying attention to since this session started which might be frustrating to lawmakers who are interested in the business of making laws and writing and, and, and wanting attention for their bills but but this is sort of dominated, to me at least, uh, the, the session, regardless of all the other activity that's going around here, and of course there's a lot of it. Natalie.
1: Yeah, of course, you know the FBI. How could the FBI not be something we're we're all looking into and trying so to find out more about? What's going to be the next
0: big news story? But as far as the FBI,
1: read. you know, I wish I, I, wish I could tell you that. Do you know, do you have any insight there?
0: I'm waiting on you to tell me. Well, the, the, the big thing of course is going to be whether
2: there's indictments, right? I mean, searches don't mean anything necessarily, but usually they precede indictments and people being arrested and, and all that. So that's, you know, and of course we don't know. and And again, the FBI hasn't said, but, but three lawmakers had their three house members had their homes and offices searched and staffers did as well. And. And, uh, and I guess the other, the big shoe to drop, the next one is if and when indict- yeah. indictments are filed. And, and we'll just have to wait and see. And just for historical comparison, when, when uh, State Senator Katrina Robertson's business was searched by the FBI, that was in February, and then she was indicted in July. So if, if they hold that schedule, I guess we got a couple more months to go.
1: And it's, it's complicated with the the grand jury issues, too, with the pandemic. And I don't know how much that is or isn't impacting this situation.
2: And of course, nobody might be indicted at all, you know, there's always that possibility though, you know, you know who knows. So right. we'll we'll have to wait and see, but I think that that's just been the big the big issue this this year for
0: me.
1: Tennessee legislators could have just been due for a raid, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, as the Typically, say that if the FBI shows up and does a raid, they already have the facts. They're just making a show. <laughs> so, have, have either of you ever heard that? <laughs>
2: yes, actually. <laughs> it seems like there could be
1: something to that. <laughs> Hopefully, they're not—they're uh, not getting a warrant with you know nothing, nothing there.
0: Exactly. Well, you know, as a as a lawmaker, obviously, it it's kind of like a family member. That gets caught doing something that they shouldn't do it's it's kind of has a sting, uh, kind of a uh, hurtfulness, you know, just the fact that you feel like that a family member is as, um, is going through uh, some challenges, especially with uh, with a raid and you're like, did they do it? Did't they do it? And so you know it's it's um, it's always concerning to me when when lawmakers are are in in those type of situations. Who is your most memorable legislator, Mr. Eric?
2: Well, since I'm speaking to a senator, I'm going to have to go with, with Ron Ramsey, the longtime Senate speaker, who is just a great personality and storyteller, joke teller, um, and, and a very effective leader of, of the chamber. I mean, he really managed to get his will, have his will be done uh, when he was running the show here. And he was just a lot of fun to cover. There's all kinds of colorful
1: personalities here, right? the type of person who's going to run for state office is just not someone who doesn't want to make headlines. And so people have all sorts of motivations for what they do. And I don't know, but I, I think probably most memorable Kent Calfi, right? Like he, uh,
2: <laughs> that was,
1: that was quite the, the moment there on the, the house floor, the night of the the 2020 state of the state, when we got that photo of him sipping from his Hershey chocolate syrup bottle. And so, so that that was a fun, fun moment. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, Kent's a good friend, and and he's also uh, very colorful, and and uh, and as we say, a character. He
1: is a character. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Eric, what is your most memorable story?
2: The election of of, of Kent Williams uh, as Speaker in the House in, in two thousand nine caused a, a huge uproar because, as some of the old timers, I guess at this point, remember, he banded together with. 49 Democrats to have himself elected speaker over the Republican nominee that year leading to all kinds of condemnation and uh, you know the, the people in the chamber were, were booing and screaming and a ring of troopers had to come around and ring the, the speaker's podium and and where I was sitting at the time with the AP was you know right next door to it but right in the glass enclosed press box and it was just a, a wild experience of just you know chaos and barely teetering on lawlessness. It seemed it was, it was really amazing. Fast forward about a year, and I was sitting in the chamber on a on a you know middle of session day, and nothing much was going on. And I was I think I was the only person in the press box. And I suddenly hear a commotion to my right, and Williams had basically fallen forward and hit his head on the podium and fell to the ground. And my immediate response was like, "Oh my goodness! I wonder if somebody's up in the balcony had thrown something at him or something." And there's still a lot of ill will toward the guy, and you know, it soon turned out that. wasn't anything going on and and but my first response was to call it into the you know old timey you know we used to have a landline in the in the booth i called the desk and said the speaker has collapsed and you know here's the details and i'll call in more when i have it and as people were assembling up on the uh, on the podium to sort of treat him and and, and try to help him i pulled out a little camera that i had in my bag this is pre-cell phone cameras and started taking pictures snapping pictures Well, a couple, um, house members didn't take lightly to that and started blocking my view. So I ended up standing up on the chair and taking pictures over the glass enclosure, uh, toward the speaker's podium. And when I did that, suddenly there was a mass uproar in the chamber and people started screaming. And I started looking around saying, you know, what's going on? Is something else happened? Well, it turned out they were screaming at me, uh, and people (laughs) had gotten really upset that I was, that I was doing this and people were just hollering and hooting and next thing you know, uh a state trooper showed up and started pulling at my jacket and I got basically pulled out of the chamber. Uh, and it was just a huge to do. And, and people got up on the floor and denounced me for interfering with rescue efforts and, and all this stuff. And I was like, what are they talking about? I was just, I was within my cube the whole time. It was wild. And, and basically all these journalism organizations got involved and defended me. And, and it was really weird going from being, of course, a fairly anonymous wire reporter to being the subject of vitriol. And, and as it panned out, a Democratic lawmaker filed a resolution to to urge the press corps chairman to ban me from the floor for the rest of the session. Really? The good news was I was the press corps chairman at the time, so <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't take the thing. But the, the, I was absolved from many crimes when a uh, Channel 4 TV report came out, and they had actually been filming. Uh, I don't know why, but they were there and had raw footage of the whole incident, which of course showed that I hadn't interfered with the speaker. And so I went to meet with him later and, and he said, you know, Eric, I, I haven't heard booings like that since the day I was elected. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and if you talk to the members who were around then, uh, several of them are still here either as members or lobbyists and, and they all sort of laugh about the fact that they all got caught up in the, in the fury, mostly because of course they were nervous and they were worried for the health of the speaker, even though they didn't agree with him politically, they didn't obviously want him to be hurt, but it, it was definitely an interesting experience to suddenly have the I turn around and become the subject of a,
0: of a lot of attention, so. Well, that's a great story. That's one that I've <laughs> never heard. So. What did you,
2: you came to the house, what year was your 2014
0: first? 2014 okay, was my okay. first year. Okay,
2: so that, that had long, that era had passed, and we were on to the next one. So. I,
0: I was, I served that one year with, with Kent Williams. Of course, he wasn't speaker at the time, but my office was in War Memorial, so I had an opportunity to visit with him several different times, so. But he was always very nice and very gracious to me. So. All right, Natalie.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of you know chaos on the House floor, I think it, it from my experience, the voucher vote day was pretty wild. Were you Were you in the the chamber for that? Yeah. So so 2019 was my first session covering session here at the legislature, and I think that that was a really interesting time to start reporting on the General Assembly with the quick rise and fall of Cassidy, the day of the voucher vote. It was hysteria on the floor, you know, everyone shouting, of course, the vote board being held open, Uh, Bo Mitchell screaming from the back, don't do it, Ron, the sergeant at arms preventing us from exiting the media box and keeping us from trying to look out the blinds onto the balcony where, of course, you know, there was the porch caucus. Yes. The the porch caucus had assembled. (laughs) Uh, if, if only, if only we could have been out there, but I mean that, that session in general, like multiple times troopers were, you know, trying to keep us from doing our jobs, threatening to arrest me at one point for not leaving the, the first floor of the Capitol where there were David Burt protesters, you know, occupying and, you know, just crazy. It was just unhinged. Like we were at a press conference one time and they tried to block us from leaving. I mean, it, that was, it was just a crazy time to start reporting on this place and it's it's in many ways mellowed out since then at least um on the surface but yeah the the voucher vote day and the house floor is is one that uh, i won't forget for sure
2: Things are much more stable on the Senate side, which means, of course, we, uh, you know, tend to sort of lean over to see what's happening in the House. You know, the the excitement and the craziness is usually reserved to the lower chamber.
0: Well, in the press (laughs) box and the Senate chamber is right behind my desk. So many times I'll turn around to see if there's reporters in there, because it's like when the House comes into session, all reporters exit the Senate and go to the House. And I have to say, in your stories that you're telling, It's all about the House and and just how chaotic that the House can be, which goes to prove that the Senate is full of mature adults, and the House is still full of fraternity and sorority college students.
2: (laughs) Mostly, but not always.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they're all our good friends over there, most days, but uh, it it certainly So we're going to round this out. And is there any final thoughts from either of you in regards to our our podcast today?
2: No, thanks for having us on. This was fun. No, absolutely. Just uh, read your local newspaper and (laughs) buy a subscription.
0: Well, (laughs) again, thank you both for um, participating. And, And it's certainly been informative, not only for me, but for our listeners. Thank you for listening to Backroads and Backstories. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Backroads and Backstories podcast with Senator Paul Bailey. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at backroadsandbackstories.com. And subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Backroads and Backstories podcast.